Hello and welcome to the Village Church Podcast. My name is John and we are glad to have you join us. We work to deliver our most recent preaching content to you as soon as possible, so let's get into God's Word together. We are gathered this morning to consider the last sermon in our Advent series. We're concluding the Advent series and somebody's thinking, Pastor, it was Christmas last week. We already concluded our Advent series. No Advent series is complete if it ends at the birth of Jesus Christ. Because the first coming leads to the second coming. And so to appropriately and properly end an Advent series, we must consider the second coming. We have looked over several weeks at Christ's first coming. The need for him to come, the prophecies of his coming, the actual event of his birth. We looked last week at the person and work of his first coming, that being his life death, and resurrection, we come this morning on the eve of a new year to consider the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Most commonly, we aim to preach in an expositional manner. I want to explain that, expositional preaching. The simplest definition I can give you all to hold on to is this. A preacher opens God's word and anchors himself in a text of scripture and declares the truth of God's word, the meaning of God's word, and how that applies to our lives today. This is how we aim to preach from every piece of scripture that we open, from every page that we consider. We aim to declare the truth of God's word, what that means, and how we should live in light of it today. Today's sermon, however, will be more topical in nature than expositional. If you are a student of the Bible, you know that the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ is a big topic. It's actually a much larger topic than the birth. The second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ is such a topic that as I studied and was full, quite honestly, of anxiety, which doesn't normally happen, I couldn't come to one piece of scripture and say, turn in your Bibles to this as we consider. Now, there are certainly premier texts. Matthew 24 and 25 come to mind. Probably as the most premier text, especially considering that Matthew 24 and 25 are all the words of Jesus. And Jesus is the greatest teacher on his second coming. Also, 1 Thessalonians and no doubt the entire book of Revelation. And suddenly everyone understood why I couldn't point to one text. Because the topic of Christ's return is so large. To be sure, I intend still to declare the truth of God's word. And I will do my best to provide some clear application. But this will happen from multiple references, not one singular text. I hope to accomplish in today's sermon three things. That we would grow in our knowledge and understanding of the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are things to know The Bible does teach much, and I pray that this morning would serve as a launching point for you to begin learning, knowing, and understanding, I pray, more about Christ's second coming. Second, I pray that those who are here, who belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ, I pray that you will become more aware of how we ought to be living as we wait for Christ's second coming. And lastly, that through the declared truth of God's word, I pray that those who are here who may not yet belong to God, I pray that today's sermon will serve as leading them to surrender. That you will, through faith in Jesus Christ, call on the name of the Lord and be saved, and that you may also begin living 
in anticipation of Christ's second coming. My notes this morning are much more prepared than usual. I will be looking at my paper more often than I do because there are things to make sure we get right when we talk about the second coming of the Lord. And so I've been very intentional and very thoughtful in my remarks this morning considering this, concerning the second coming of the Lord. I do have a disclaimer, and though I do not typically provide disclaimers, and I do make no apology for what the scripture says, I felt that it was necessary to address a few things before we actually begin considering the Lord's second coming. One, the second coming of Christ has seen no end of debate throughout the centuries, and with reason, because more than 2,000 years ago, the man who said he's going to return went away and has yet to return, and we all know that the longer it takes for something to happen, the less likely we actually think it will. When you add to that our broken, fallen state of humanity, it's easy for us to doubt when things do not happen. It's very easy for us to doubt things that we cannot see and things that are difficult to understand. The second coming of Christ has been debated throughout the centuries due in no small part to the things that are wrapped up in the scriptural teaching of Christ's second coming. It needs to be understood that, biblically speaking, there are things said in the Bible about Christ's second coming that no man's teaching can make clear. There are things we will not agree on and there are things that we will never understand until the perfect one comes and we abide in the presence of the all-knowing one. There will always be opposing viewpoints. I have no doubt that in this room today there are multiple people who do not agree on most things concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ. There are multiple viewpoints to consider. There are four main ones. I'm not even going to name them right now. There are four main views of the end times, one of which most people hold, and three others that some people hold. There's no end of disagreement among Christians about the events of the end time. However, the division of God's people was never an intended purpose for which God wrote us. And so at the moment that we start to feel ourselves dividing especially over things that we should not divide over because we don't understand them, we should then be seeking to look at those things that unify us. For centuries, Christians have disagreed on much regarding the doctrine of last things. But rather than speaking to those things that are so easily divided over, the sermon this morning will seek to unify us on those things which Scripture clearly states. Thankfully, Amidst all of the varying views and difficult-to-understand points of end-time teaching, the Bible says much that is crystal clear for us to understand about Christ's second coming. Lastly, I am not presenting any of these points this morning that we will consider in any particular order. There is no intentional linear thought progression to what I'm going to share with you this morning. They are simply high-level points. I would consider them main points that the Bible speaks to regarding the second coming of Jesus Christ. This will be in no way, I assure you, an exhaustive look at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Excellent preachers have spent multiple months, if not years, teaching and writing on the second coming of Christ. My purpose this morning is simply to stir us in our knowledge and understanding of the second coming, to see us consider how we ought to live as we wait for the second coming, and to stir those who do not belong to God to faith in Jesus Christ, I pray. Would you pray with me? Our God and Father, as we come to consider your word this morning, I plead for your help as I speak to things which are 
shrouded in mystery. Father, I pray that the things that are clear would be clear to us. Father, that we would grab a hold of those things which you have made clear. And God, that we would leave the mystery of who you are and the mystery of things that we do not understand to your perfect knowledge and to your will. Father, help us to unify on those things which are so clear. Help us to be a people who do not divide over things that we perhaps don't agree on, especially those prophetic things, those symbolic things. God, may we understand what the teaching of the end time means. And may we live accordingly. Father, I pray this morning as your word is proclaimed in many, in many places, God, I pray that the sinner would be humbled to repentance and salvation. I pray that the holiness of your people would be promoted. And I pray that Christ, the Savior, would be exalted. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Several points, considerations regarding the second coming. The first, this. The second coming was foretold. The second coming is not something made up. It is something that God has foretold. It is something that we know. We know that Christ will come again because the word that became flesh and dwelt among us, the birth that we just celebrated, Jesus Christ has told us that he will return again. Without a doubt, the New Testament holds most of the content regarding the second coming of Christ. But I would have you know and I would have you share the Old Testament is not silent on this topic. Many of us would consider the second coming of Jesus Christ being isolated to the New Testament, but it's not, and this is a great thought for us to consider. Rather than being isolated to the New Testament, and rather than being thought of as a sequel, perhaps you, like me at various points in times, have considered the return of Christ as a sequel. It's a part two to the first part. He came once and now he'll come again. That is an error for us to think in that way. The second coming is an event that has been, along with the first coming, declared from eternity past by an all-knowing sovereign God who, in Isaiah, says through the prophet Isaiah, I have declared the end from the beginning, making known things of old, from of ancient times, things not yet done. And so it's interesting for us to consider that the Old Testament, along with the New Testament, proclaims the second coming of Christ. It was foretold by the prophets. The psalmist speaks of a day when the Lord will judge the earth. We heard it just a few weeks ago, Psalm chapter 98, verses 8 and 9. Let the rivers clap their hands let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. That's an event that has not yet happened. Truly, we all stand under the judgment of God, but all of the world and all of the earth has not yet stood the judgment of God. We are under the wrath of God because of sin. In the Ten Commandments, God's law shows us that we are sinful and in need of salvation, but we have not yet been judged for all of eternity. He has not yet judged the earth. He has not yet judged the peoples. That's the psalmist, perhaps as much as a thousand years before Christ. The prophet Zechariah. How many of you have ever read the book of Zechariah? Let's be honest with one another in church on a Sunday morning. 
There's some hands in the room, and I'm really glad about that. Zechariah is a sleeper book of the Old Testament. If you've never read it, do so. It's a fantastic book proclaiming Jesus. Zechariah, the prophet in the 14th chapter, mind you, some 500 years before the coming of Jesus Christ, in chapter 14, no less than six times refers to the second coming using the words, on that day. We just sang them. On that day we will see you, shining brighter than the sun. The prophet Zechariah using the words, on that day, referring to a day, I made a list as I considered this chapter the other day, referring to a day when the Lord shall appear, vanquish his foes, give rest and safety to his people, and a day when day and night will cease. We could look at Zechariah 14 and we could think this is speaking to the first coming of Jesus Christ. But when you get to the verse that talks about day and night ceasing, that's not happened yet. And the interesting thing is that nearly 600 years after Zechariah's prophecy, in Revelation, as John writes about God setting up his eternal kingdom on a new earth, John writes, Revelation 22.5, night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun. Though few, these Old Testament references show us that the second coming was a part of God's divine plan long before the first coming actually took place. They're foretold by prophets. The second coming was foretold also by Jesus. As we move into the New Testament, Second coming language intensifies through the teachings of Jesus Christ. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record Jesus speaking about his second coming. Matthew chapter 24 and 25, again, perhaps the premier texts of Christ's teaching on his own second coming. From when it will happen, to how soon, from how we should live while we wait, to warning the wicked about it, Jesus is the best teacher. Much of what we will consider this morning come from the words of Christ alone. After Christ's time on earth, the apostles carried on with the task. Christ made known his second coming. Christ taught about his second coming. And then the apostles took up the mantle, mind you, the command that Jesus gave them. Sometimes we miss it. It's subtle. Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded. So as the apostles begin perpetuating and preserving God's word under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they carry forward the thought of Christ's coming a second time. Jesus taught his apostles. They wrote in order to tell God's people throughout time about his plan to return, his plan to be glorified, his plan for final judgment, his plan for eternity. We know about Christ's second coming because God himself told us about it. And what has he told us about it? God has revealed in his word that the second coming will be visible. The second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ will not be shrouded in obscurity like the first coming was. The second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ will not be something that leaves mankind asking, did it happen? Did I miss it? That's not going to exist on the day of the coming of the Lord. As a young child, uh, I watched and, and read 
several things about the end times. And as a, as a young person growing up in church, we watched a series of movies that will remain nameless because some of us might have PTSD from them, but that's okay. And uh, these movies, they, they were reflections of things that were going to happen at the end of time, reflections of Christ's coming. And, uh, and for years, as a young person after watching them, I was left with, did I miss it? They just, just in fear. Did it happen? Was I left behind? Friends, the second coming of Christ is not going to be something that leaves anyone wondering if it's happened. It will be visible. The second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ will bring about events the likes of which the world has never seen, including the outpouring, oh Lord, the outpouring of God's wrath on those who walk in disobedience. Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. In Matthew chapter 24 verse 30, Jesus said, All the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man, coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Of his first coming, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 53, said of Messiah's first coming, he had no stately form or majesty. He had no appearance that we should take note of him. He was one as from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we did not value him. We considered him afflicted and struck down by God. This is what Isaiah said of the Messiah's first coming. At his second coming, Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, says he will come forth on a white horse. In righteousness he will judge and make war, and he will come with the armies of heaven. This is fantastic, and my friend and Pastor John Collins pointed out to me that armies here, plural, is one of the only times in Scripture where it says armies and not army. And I'm going to be honest, I derailed. There are mysterious things in scripture that I'm like, what does that even mean? I tried to wrap my head around what it means that the Lord Jesus Christ will appear with the armies of heaven. Oh, people, we cannot fathom what the abode and dwelling of God looks like what he has at his disposal. Remember Christ in the garden when Peter cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant and Jesus says, put it away. Do you not know that I could call down legions of angels? We cannot fathom what the armies of heaven must be. But then I had to come back and think, it's not about the armies of heaven, John. Get your head right. It's about the king coming forth on a white horse, leading triumphant armies, to vanquish for all eternity his foe, and everyone will know when it happens. As a side note, I did not dwell on this thought. The second coming will be visible, will also be physical. We're not going to see a mirage or an image that looks like Jesus. We will see Jesus. We will see him in bodily form, resurrected, glorified, The description of Revelation 19, indeed the whole Bible, speaks to Christ's visible and physical return to this earth. 
The second coming was foretold. The second coming will be visible. The second coming is imminent. How many of you used the word imminent this past week in your day-to-day vocabulary? Right, probably not many of us. Imminent. I-M-M-I-N-E-N-T. Imminent. It means near, close, at hand. The great question produced over the centuries has always been, when will Jesus return? Great prophetic ministries out there, great names in our past, calculating and working to pinpoint. And the only answer that man should ever give, you're all thinking of your answer right now. You're all thinking, nobody knows. Well, that's what the Bible says, but the answer to when will Christ return for God's people has always, from the day he left planet Earth, the correct answer has always been, soon. His return is imminent. The second coming of Christ will, no doubt, as Jesus teaches, come on a day and at an hour that is unknown to everyone but God the Father. Jesus said, recorded in Matthew 24, 36 and Mark 13, 32, that no one knows that day and hour but the Father only. And I offer no explanation for this mystery of the Bible. Somehow, somewhere deep within the eternal existence and operation of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the day and hour of Christ's second coming was determined by God the Father alone and revealed to no one And it's a mystery. And we should not try to understand what Jesus says. It's not for you to know. No one knows but the Father, not even me. If you want to spend the rest of your life wondering how God knows something, the Father that God the Son doesn't know, be my guest. But Jesus just says, only God the Father knows. It's coming at a day that you don't know. That's why the correct answer to when will Christ return is always soon. We do not know when Christ will return, but we know that his return is imminent. Luke 12, verse 40 records Christ as saying, the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. It's New Year's Eve. Every person in the room is anticipating that the day will go on, we'll eat a lot of food, probably far too late at night, that we shouldn't eat and feel really bad about having eaten it tomorrow morning, and we'll get to midnight when the clock will strike And if you watch television, the big lit up ball will slide down a pole and tell us it's a new year. That's what we're all expecting. What we should be expecting is, oh Lord, come quickly. May you return, Lord, soon. Because Christ teaches that his coming will be at an unknown hour, we are always to be living in expectation of his return. Some of the greatest warnings in scripture have to do with your life and how you live it between the first and second appearance of Jesus Christ. Indeed, all of the New Testament has to do with how God's people live between the birth and the return of Jesus Christ. How ought we to live? A question we'll answer, I pray, as we go on. One of the ways we should consider how we are living, we should be living in expectation of his return. Christ's return is imminent. But Christ, and specifically the Apostle Paul, are both clear that it will not be sudden. 
It's interesting that in Matthew chapter 24, the apostles, the disciples, asked Jesus, what will be the signs of the end of the age? And Jesus doesn't say there are none. All of us have programmed in our mind, there are no signs for the return of Christ. That's not true. Jesus and the apostle Paul speak to things that will happen before Christ returns. All of us thought, well, no, the Bible teaches he's, he's going to come suddenly, uh, out of nowhere. No, the Bible teaches that he's going to come when we don't expect it. And there's a great thought in that expectation of our lives. We, God's people, should be expecting the return of Christ so that when it happens, we are not caught off guard and unbelievers are living in such a way so that when Christ returns, they will have no opportunity but to be surprised. Wait a minute. What just happened? The Lord came and you were not prepared for it. Both Christ and the Apostle Paul teach that the return of Christ is imminent. It is near. It will come at a day and a time that we do not expect, but it will not be suddenly. The illustration of birth pains are used by Christ in Matthew 24 and by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5. There are several mothers in the room. There are several fathers in the room. So mothers and fathers are both aware of birth pains. Dads, you remember when you first heard the news, we're expecting a child. You're like, Whew. and you got excited. And you also remember the first time your wife went, oh, and you went, are you okay? Yep, I'll be okay. okay I'm, I'm fine, I'm fine, right? You remember this, I remember it. And what happens? Like you, oh, I'm glad you're okay. What happens? Then nothing happens for a long time until, whew, give me a minute. I'm okay. And what happens? Those pains over nine months become more frequent and they become more intense. And this is what Jesus and Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is the illustration that Jesus gave us for the end time. Birth pains develop slowly and intensify, then rapidly to what? A climactic event. The birth takes place. In Matthew 24, Jesus tells us that before his second coming, the birth pains will be wars and rumors of wars. Nation rising against nation. Earthquakes. Famines. And all God's people said these things have been happening for centuries. That's correct. Because birth pains start and they don't stop until the child is born. Birth pains start slowly increasing steadily then rapidly to a climactic event. And Christ says the birth pains will be like wars and rumors of wars, nation rising against nation, earthquakes, famines, many will fall away, many betraying one another, many false prophets will come. I need us to understand that as we live between the first and second coming of Jesus Christ, the birth pain started when Christ left in his ascension. And they have been, over the centuries, growing rapidly steadily, and they will grow to a climactic end. 
We do not know the day or the hour. But as these birth pains happen and continue to happen, you may be asking, what's the point of the birth pains then? This, to cause us as God's people to remember that Jesus is returning. So when we see war between Ukraine and Russia, when we see Israel and and Palestine, when we see earthquakes and famines, when we see people falling away, when we see people betraying one another, when we see false prophets arising, as God's people, the Bible's language is very clear to us, as God's people, don't be alarmed. Recognize that Jesus told us this will happen. And take courage, it's happening. What does that mean? It means that Christ's return is soon but it will not be sudden. There have been many things in our history to cause us to think, is this it? Is that it? But there are things, the Apostle Paul points out two very clear indicators. There are two things to indicate the closer nearness. And those of you that love grammar can fault me if you want, but that's the only way I could word it. The closer nearness of Christ's return. None of these things lead us to pinpointing a date. Far be it from us. Don't ever do it. Don't listen to someone who tells you a date. Don't think you can calculate a date. No man knows the hour. No one. But there are events that will happen. Paul calls them the rebellion and the man of lawlessness. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 says, Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day... If you're looking at 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, you know that that day, we're talking about the coming of the Lord, that day, the return of Christ, that day, the second coming, will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. This is important for our end times understanding. The study of the end times is called eschatology. The study of the end times, eschatology. Eschatos is uh, old language, Greek language for last things. Ology, we've discussed before, the study of anything. So the study of last things, eschatology. This is formative to our eschatology to understand that before the return of Christ, the Bible tells us of two very specific things that will take place before Christ's return. 2 Thessalonians 2.3, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. 2 Thessalonians 3 goes on in verse 4 and says, describing this man of lawlessness, because we're tempted to think all the time, listen, I've said terrible things about people that I think are the man of lawlessness. The antichrist, if you will. Terrible things about people that... I've said, that person's got to be. When we watched in recent years, the whole country was saying that certain political figures must have been the Antichrist. I need everyone to pay attention to what 2 Thessalonians 3, 4 says about the man of lawlessness. He is one who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you understand? With everything that we've seen throughout human history, we've never seen this. Do you understand? Paul says, 
the man of lawlessness opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God and every object of worship. The man of lawlessness, when he's revealed, becomes, interestingly, it says, until the rebellion and the man of lawlessness is revealed, whether these are in tandem with one another, whether they are simultaneous events, or whether one leads to the other, the Bible is not clear. It simply says, that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Not and then the man, but just and the man. So the rebellion comes first, people are fleeing from Christianity, It's a terrifying thought as a preacher to think that when this event takes place, there might not be anyone sitting in here anymore. The Bible says when the rebellion happens, ancient writers and scholars call it the great apostasy, it will not simply be a person having a trouble attending church on a weekly basis. It will be a wholesale denial and refusal and turning away from the truth of Scripture. That's what the rebellion is. We've been seeing it since Christ was on the earth. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. When the man of lawlessness is revealed, he will not simply defy God and the Bible and Christianity. He will defy everything that is so-called worship and want it all for himself. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, and no doubt as we consider this man of lawlessness, says that the activity of the man of lawlessness is at the work of Satan. Christian, I want you to take heart as I talk about this figure who sounds scary and intimidating. Paul no sooner brings him up in 2 Thessalonians 3, talks about him through like the first six or seven verses, and then he says, at Christ's second coming, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, the Lord Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth and bring him to nothing at the appearance of his coming. This is going to happen in one moment where the rebellion and the man of lawlessness and when Christ comes, he will ruin all of that. That is the authority and the power of our returning king that we hope for in the second coming. I I love it. I couldn't even nice it up. I'm like, how can I say, he'll destroy him, he'll do away with him. No, the Bible says he will kill him. With all that we have seen, We haven't seen this. History has seen figures that perhaps resemble this. First century Christians thought they were seeing it in AD 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed. No doubt there were Jews around the time of the 30s and 40s in the 20th century, 1900s, where they thought that Adolf Hitler may have been the Antichrist. No doubt in our time, we have considered various world leaders. Is, is it Fidel Castro? Is it uh, People are like, whoa, pastors naming names. Yeah, we've all thought these things. And Americans are so foolish that we think the Antichrist will probably be American. We haven't seen this person. And when we do, it will be something we have never seen before. Reminding us, Christian, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed reminding us that everything that God said will happen, will happen. The second coming is imminent. Christ will come soon. With it, the second coming will bring resurrection and final judgment. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17, that at the coming of the Lord, quote, the dead in Christ will rise first. This teaching is often used in regards to 
the second coming of Christ, and with good reason because Paul details some things. But do you know what this passage is actually referring to? It's referring to our hope as Christians die and we live in this world. Paul says, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep. You're going to be with them again. And here's how that's going to take place. So as we grow and as we age and as we experience the loss of dear brothers and sisters, we take comfort in knowing that Christ will return again. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. This is the resurrection of the righteous dead. It's also interesting that as the apostles wrote it, you can see in their language, you can hear in their language, the return of Christ is soon. Paul says, the dead in Christ will rise first, and his language goes on and says, then we who are. He was anticipating Oh, he may come in my time. We may see it in my day. And if I'm alive, when that happens, I will be caught up together with those who are dead with Christ in the air that we may forever be with him. The resurrection of the righteous dead. John wrote, Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 through 15, that before a great white throne of judgment, all the dead will come forth. The Bible says the sea gave up its dead. The earth gave up its dead. Hades gave up its dead. All of the dead of humanity Every person that has ever lived and died, do you understand, from beginning to end, will be gathered before the great white throne of God, and they will stand. And the Bible says that anyone whose name is not written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. This is eternal punishment. There is a teaching that would say that when we die and when we're judged, we are dead and we are gone. It's called annihilationism. That's the teaching. If you hear of it, turn away from it. Know that you're hearing something that the Bible does not talk about. Annihilationism is a false teaching. The unrighteous dead will suffer eternal punishment. Forever punishment. The Bible says, in the lake of fire. The Bible says in Revelation 20 that all the dead were gathered and those names who were not found were cast into the lake of fire. In Revelation 19, the Bible says that the dragon, the prostitute, Satan himself, it says they are cast into the lake of fire where they will suffer forever. And the unrighteous dead are thrown with them. Christian, this is what gives us urgency with the gospel in the lives of those who do not know Jesus Christ. It's not just live a good life now. It's there is coming judgment. There is wrath coming for you. The Bible says, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, wrath of God on those who walk in disobedience. How do we not walk in disobedience? Call on Christ today and be saved. Repent of sin and live a life for him. There is a judgment to be escaped and Christ is the escape for us. Second coming, foretold, visible, imminent, will bring final judgment, will bring resurrection. Daniel even wrote about it, interestingly enough, as we consider Old and New Testament resurrection and, and final judgment. Daniel wrote of being shown the same thing in Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Daniel said he saw the righteous dead raised to everlasting life. He saw the unrighteous dead raised to everlasting punishment, eternal contempt. Only those whose names are written in the book of life, will live. That book will be opened at the second coming of Jesus Christ. 
and all of humanity from all of time will endure that judgment. Lastly, very quick point. The second coming will begin the dwelling of God with his people for eternity. At Christ's return, the longing of every saint throughout all of time will be realized as we reign and live eternal with God. Revelation chapter 21 verse 3 says, God will make his dwelling place with man. Revelation 22 5 says, they will reign forever. This is such a poor attempt to talk about the end times in a concise manner. Even as I say end times, I'm so irritated. There's no such thing as end times. We're in the end times. There's the end times that we live in now, and there's the end of time, which is what we're talking about, the second coming of Christ. I can't get it out of my head. Such a poor attempt to talk about so many great truths, and no doubt so many things that people are like, why didn't you talk about that? Why didn't you talk about that? Why don't we all get together and talk about it together? People are like, but pastor, you didn't even talk about the rapture and when you think it'll happen. You didn't even talk about what your view of the millennium is. No, I didn't because those things are extremely controversial and I don't want to divide us. I want to bring us together about those things that are not controversial. Christ is returning. His return was foretold. His return will be visible. His return is imminent. His return will bring judgment and resurrection. His return will begin the dwelling dwelling of God with his people. So as we consider all of these things, how ought we to live? None of you came in here today, I would wager, because I know that so often I don't. None of us showed up at church today thinking about, how am I living today in light of Christ's pending return? I hope I'm wrong. I hope somebody came in thinking it. But our hearts are so sick that we are so easily thrown off of what we should be considering thinking about what should be stirring how we live that it becomes anything else. I've still got seven family Christmases to go to. There's the New Year's Eve party. I'm going to be up really late. I got to work on Tuesday morning. I'm really tired after this last week. All these things that we're thinking about. Think about the things that you came in here thinking about this morning. But it's the return of Christ that is imminent. When this world of time is done, how then ought we to live? Our lifetime has fallen between the first and second coming of Christ. We look back on his sacrifice and we are thankful. But we must look ahead to his return. Are you expectant? How ought we to live? I have two points. Two thoughts for us to consider amidst the, I don't even know how many that the Bible talks about. We ought to be longing for Christ's return. The writer of Hebrews said, Hebrews, Hebrews 9, 26, and 28, Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. I stop for a brief moment. If you are here this morning and you have not through faith in Jesus Christ called upon the name of the Lord, if you have not confessed your sin, if you have not sought the grace and mercy that is available freely to you from God through faith in Jesus Christ, I say, do so now. Do not harden your heart. God is holy. We are desperately sinful. The only sacrifice that can bring us before God is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is only through faith in him, by calling on his name, the Bible says, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, confessing with your mouth that he is Lord, the Bible says, you will be saved. That's what's celebrated in the first coming of Jesus Christ. 
we have a way to the Father. If you have not, I pray, I plead, I beg of you, do so today. Call on the Lord and be saved. Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The writer of Hebrews goes on, 9.28. And Christ will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Oh, the urgency. Do you understand that at the appearance of Jesus Christ, at the second coming of our Lord, it will be too late to call on him for salvation. Do you understand the urgency now to share Christ with all those that we know? Christian, do you understand that your Christmas party, that your New Year's party, that your daily work routine, that your daily dwelling with people in this life is about the urgency of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the pending, soon, imminent, near return of that Savior? And how often do we talk about the weather and the sports and the hunting and the fishing and the golfing and the vacations and the kids and the house and the work and the car? And we never come to the point of Jesus Christ is coming soon to judge the world in righteousness. Who do you say he is? Peter wrote, 2 Peter 3, verse 11 and 13, all the wickedness of the earth is to be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? We ought to be longing. In our longing, we ought to be holy. We ought to be godly. Peter saying, waiting for and hastening. In our longing, we are saying, come Lord Jesus. Are we making him come any sooner? No, there's a day and a time that is set by God the Father, but it is the spirit and the inclination of our hearts saying, come Lord Jesus. We desire to be with you, our God and our King. As we wait for the Lord's return, we ought to be longing. Think about all the temporal things that you long for. Take stock of your life. Think about the temporal things you long for. The big raise, the new car, the new house. Young people in the room are longing for the day they graduate and can move out. Young people dream of a wedding day, having children. Christian, do you long for Christ's return as much as you long for these temporal things that the world says, that the word says are passing away? As God's people, redeemed by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, delivered from the wages of sin and saved from God's wrath, we ought to be longing for Christ's return. We ought to share the desire of the Apostle Paul who says, Philippians 1.23, my desire is to be with Christ, for that is far better. Longing and enduring. We are to endure to the end. Our life as God's people is a life of suffering and sorrow. You're like, I don't know about that. Life is pretty good. No, at its core, you understand that the Christian life is a life of suffering and sorrow in this world. We await an eternal joy where suffering and sorrow will be no more, but in this life, it causes sorrow. How many of you know that you can't open your mouth about the Lord Jesus Christ when you gather with your family? That's sorrow. How many of you have been told by your coworker, don't ever open your mouth to me ever again about your Jesus? That's sorrow. How many friendships do we no longer have? How many relationships have ended because we've taken a stand for Jesus Christ in our life? That's sorrow. But Jesus says in Matthew 24, 13, the one who endures will be saved. Our faith is not a one-time, once-in-a-moment, done-for-all-time thing. It is an enduring 
faith that is to be with us every day. Romans 5, 3 through 5. says that we ought to rejoice in sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. As God's people, we suffer much for the cause of Christ, and God's warning to his people throughout all of time is just hang on. Just hang on and endure. Don't walk away. Don't look away. Don't think, what else is out there? What did I miss? This is the very sin of Eve in the garden. She looked too long at the fruit, and she took and she ate it. Just hang on, Christian. We've celebrated the coming of Christ. We have considered the first coming of Christ, and we rejoice at the birth of a Savior who came to save his people from their sins. And as such, we must look forward to the day that he returns. Hebrews 9, 28. Just as Christ appeared once to put away sin by his sacrifice, he will appear a second time to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. Are you eagerly waiting? Are you trusting Christ this and every hour? Is your cry, is your prayer, is your heart, oh Lord Jesus, come quickly. The prophets of old said, rend the heavens and come down. Do you desire above all things to be united with your God and with your Savior for all eternity? Never to sin again. We sing the song, saved to sin no more. Death gone, sorrow gone, pain gone, tears gone, forever in the presence of our God. This body of death put away. That's what we have to look forward to in the second coming of Jesus. Father, I pray this morning, God, for the hearts of those that are here. Oh, Father, stir in your people such expectation and joy at the thought of your return. God, may we be people who long for it. Help us, I pray, God, as your word tells us, help us to be alert, to be awake, to be sober-minded, to be vigilant, to be diligent, Oh God, help us to long for your return. Father, help us in our desire for your return to be effective for the cause of the gospel here. Father, help us to see how our longing for eternity with you shapes our living every day. Oh God, may we not be lulled to sleep. May our love not grow cold. May we not wander from the truth. I pray, God, that we would be resilient against false prophets and false teachings, that we would stand on your word Oh God, may we draw together more frequently. Your word says, may we not neglect gathering together as we see the day approaching. Oh Father, help us to see that your grand plan throughout all of time has been to redeem a people out of the wretchedness of sin and to return to this earth to take them that we may be with you. And I pray God for every heart in this room. I pray, Father, that those hearts that are far from you have been brought nearer through the teaching of your word today, through the worship of your people today, through the proclamation of your people today. God, may you save souls that are this moment lost. May they call on you and be saved. Father, for your people, for the believers in this room, stir us with a greater longing and give us a greater endurance as we wait for your coming in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week. If you have any questions about anything you just heard or if we can pray for you, please contact us at info at Until next time, stay in God's word.